Amen. So as we come to the conclusion of the fourth chapter in Mark's gospel, he makes a shift. We shift away from Jesus' teaching of the parables and towards a series of, of miracles. We come this morning to a text that, just a terrific text, one that many of you are undoubtedly very familiar with, Jesus calming a storm out on the sea. It occurs to me that this is a, one of the very earliest stories that, that a number of children learn. They see pictures of it in the hallways in their little Bible picture books. They see pictures of, of Jesus calming a storm out there with his friends on the waters. This is a story that's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us what happened out there on the sea. And Mark provides, provides us with the greatest amount of detail, though, detail that was undoubtedly provided to him by his, by his friend Peter. Peter was out there with Jesus on, on the ocean. But in order to properly understand this morning's text, or any passage of Scripture for that matter, we do well to just slow down and ask, why did Mark write this? What's the purpose for Mark writing these words and passing them on to us today? We'll do well to go all the way back to the beginning of Mark's gospel where he says that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That the purpose for the words that, that Mark wrote, that he recorded for us, was that we may see, we may see and we may recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised Son of God, that Mark was speaking then and he's speaking today to those that have that question in their heart, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? That by seeing him, we may recognize that he is the one that is worthy of all worship. That by seeing him, we may recognize that in Jesus the Christ, salvation comes. That in seeing and recognizing him, we may gain eternal life. That's the reason why Mark wrote these words that we read this morning. That's the reason he wrote the entirety of his gospel. And the reason that that's so important, the reason that we must keep that truth in the back of our minds as we study this morning's text is because so many people will come to a passage like this and they will say, you know, God wrote these words through Mark so that I may know that Jesus can calm any storm in my life. And while it's certainly true, Jesus can, can calm any and every storm in your life. We've got to be very leery of such a man-centered interpretation of Scripture. Because what God wants is for our eyes to be fixed on Jesus, not on ourself, not on the storm. Because unless and until we come to recognize the glory of Jesus Christ... The reality that the kingdom of God has come in the person and the work of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Until we bow in submission, turning from our sin and trusting in him, it doesn't matter what he can do with storms. As long as we continue to look through this man-centered point of view towards the writings of Mark or any other passage of Scripture, we're going to be very susceptible to this American gospel, this gospel that tells us that Jesus is a means to an end instead of the end itself. Because what we need a whole lot more than saving from a storm is to love and cherish and worship and obey Jesus the Christ, Jesus who is the Son of God, Jesus the one through whom the kingdom of God has broken through here on earth. That's Mark's aim this morning. That was Mark's aim way back then. And so the miracles that we read about, they feed into that purpose. As we see Jesus exhibiting authority and power in the healing of sick people and the casting out of demons, he's making clear that he has authority and power over all things, both physical and spiritual. Then this morning we see, as he makes clear to us, yet another evidence that he also has power over all nature. Specifically, power over the sea. He gives us a foretaste of what's going to happen in those final days when he comes back, bringing order to chaos and making all things right. He shows us that he has power even over the sea. And for the ancient Hebrew people, the sea was a terrifying place. What, what history tells us is this, that while we will often read about the Jewish people out there on 
the small sea that is actually a lake called Galilee. We will see them out there fishing and making a living. That they left most of the major sea travel and trade, they left that up to the Phoenicians. That for God's people, the oceans were a terrifying place full of monsters. So they stayed away from it. And as they think back to the creation story, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That in the beginning, as God created everything that was, that there was no form, there was no order to these waters. Nothing but darkness. It wasn't until the second and third days where God spoke and he created a a gap, a space, the heavens, between the waters above and the waters below. And then then he formed those waters into oceans and into pools and into into the lakes and seas. It was only through God's voice that there could be order to this. Only God, only God could tame the seas. Only God could speak to the wind and the waves and the seas. Only God could bring order where there was chaos. And so to the people, they, they were terrified of the ocean. Similarly, they recognized that the storms that came upon the seafaring people these mighty storms that whipped up, that they came from the hands of this very same creator. Psalm 107, 23 through 29 says this. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storms be stilled, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Only God can command the winds and the waves. Only God can control the oceans. Only God can storm, can calm the storms. And Jesus, the Christ, he was about to make clear that he is God. So with that, would you stand to your feet, please? So we read together from this last portion of Mark's gospel, or excuse me, of the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel. We begin in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my precious Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. The text began like this. On that day when evening had come, so it was evening now, evening at the end of a very long day, a day that had been full, with, full of much preaching and the parables, and surely there was healing that happened on that day as well. Now You may recall that when we began our study of the parables, that I, I told you that this day very well may stretch all the way back to that Sabbath when Jesus and his disciples were walking through the field and picking grains, heads of grain, and rubbing them between their hands and popping them into their mouth. We don't know that for certain, but if that's the case, then this day, this busy day, stretches all the way back to Mark 2, 23. There was a lot that had been done on this day, and it was evening, and Jesus had to have just been utterly exhausted. Exhausted from preaching, exhausted from teaching, exhausted from healing, exhausted for caring for these crowds, these helpless, these sick, these lost people that desperately needed saving even though they didn't know what salvation meant and they didn't fully comprehend what they needed saving from. Jesus was surely just exhausted. So he says to them, let us go across to the other side. So it's Jesus that says, let's go across the lake. 
Now, Jesus is Lord, and of course, he's going to be the one that calls the shots. He's going to be the one that directs where the men go. But it's more important than just that. It's important that we recognize that it was at Jesus' command that these men headed out across this sea in this boat because they were going to meet a storm, a vicious storm. It's important that we recognize that at Jesus' command, these guys were going headlong into a very real and dangerous situation. Knowing that this great storm awaited them, he took his men, his followers, right along with him into this storm. It's important because you'll often hear people say things like, you are never safer than when you find yourself right in the middle of God's will. We okay? Okay. How long ago did it stop? Okay, sorry guys. We were told there was technical difficulties. Let me just go back. Go back and, and hit this with a run and start. So Jesus says to them, let us go across to the other side. Again, as I said, it was Jesus that's telling them to go across. Jesus knows what awaits them out there on the water, and so it is Jesus that is going to lead them out into the middle of this storm. And the reason this is important is because you will find that there are so many people out there that will say things like, you are never safer than when you find yourself right in the middle of God's will. And it depends on what you mean by safe. If by safe you mean that all things will work together for the good of those that love God and have been called according to his purpose, then yes, yes, you're safe. If by safe you mean that even a sparrow will not fall apart from God's will, then yes, yes, you are safe. If by safe what you mean is that moving forward into God's will will always lead to blessing and away from curse, then yes, yes, you are safe. But if by safe you mean that there is nothing that's going to happen in your life, if by safe you mean that you're going to suffer no loss, if by safe you're guaranteed that there's going to be no suffering, that there's going to be a bubble of protection around you, then no. No, you are not safe. In fact, there may be nowhere less safe from that standpoint than right in the middle of God's will and following after his plans for your life. Because God has made no, plan, no promises to us. Jesus made no promises to us that there would not be suffering and pain and loss of life in following after his will. Was Paul not in the middle of God's will? When he was stranded on an island and bitten by a snake? Was John the Baptist not in God's will whenever he lost his head? Were all the apostles not in God's will when they gave their life for the sake of the gospel? Surely they were. But we follow after a suffering servant. We ourselves are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. There is no path of obedience. There is no path forward in God's will which doesn't include great pain. He's promised us that. And so what we see this morning is that these men don't suffer because they had disobeyed the Lord. These men don't suffer because they had gone outside of God's will. They suffered precisely because of their obedience to Christ. And so will you. If it is your aim in this life to follow after Jesus as Lord and Savior, if it is your aim in this life to live within God's will, if it is your aim in this life to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, then you need to be prepared, be prepared to suffer. You need to be, be prepared to walk straight off into some storms. He continues, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So again, we find Jesus leaving the crowds behind. He was often doing this, moving away from the crowds, whereas we spend much time trying to gather crowds together, trying to, trying to build crowds, trying to build a name for ourselves, and we, we judge the, va the value of our ministry, the success of our word, by the crowds that we can build. We see Jesus yet again. He loved the crowds. He had compassion for the crowds, but we see him yet again moving away from the crowds. And we see this one little sentence here, just as he was, this phrase, just as he was. And I stared at those words this week. Man, I spent a lot of time just, just staring, at, staring at those little words, trying to figure out what does this mean, just as he was. Surely there's some deep theological truth that I could mine out from this and give it to you, and I didn't find any. I think what they mean is he just didn't go back on shore. You remember that Jesus was already in a boat teaching because of the size of the crowds. So I believe that what this means is he didn't even bother going back on shore. He didn't go catch a bath. He didn't change clothes. He didn't grab a bite to eat. That he just turned and he went. 
east by southeast they headed across the lake not even bothering to get out and go back and say good, goodbye to Peter's mother-in-law to his wife to their friends they headed from that point across the sea now the, the boats that Jesus and his disciples would have traveled in there they were uh, they were long wooden things and um, they found a number of them buried in the mud around the Sea of Galilee. They dug one up. In 1984, they found one. They dug it up. And it's something like 27 foot long by 8 foot wide. There would have been a sail for days when there were wind. There would have been four oars for days when there were not. And you could have fit Jesus and, and all 12 of his disciples in one of these boats. But there was more, perhaps many more disciples than just the 12. And so the text tells us that there was a number of boats that they were heading across the sea. So this giant floating caravan, it's headed across the sea, across the lake of Galilee. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boats were already filling. So you've likely heard before preachers talk about, I've mentioned at times, how the Sea of Galilee, how it is just susceptible to these violent storms that can just pop up in a moment on unsuspecting fishermen. How is, is the, cold, the cold air comes down out off of Mount Hermon, something like 9,200 feet above sea level, and it comes down and meets the warmer water in the Sea of Galilee, some 700 foot below sea level, that it can just whip up this violent wind, and with that wind is going to come just incredible waves crashing against the boats. And the, the word, the Greek word used here can also be meant to mean hurricane or, or a, a fierce gale. With these winds come just these, these killer waves. And I want you to think back with me to when you, were a, when you were a kid. Summer times when you were a kid, for us, meant a lot of time in the swimming pool. And one of our favorite things to do in the swimming pool was to create a wave pool. Now, there were two ways that we accomplished this. When we were a little bit bigger, what we would do is we would take floats or boogie boards or something like this, and you would just, just lean on them, right? You would create these waves. That worked when we were a little bit bigger. But our favorite way, much more fun, we stole the word, we stole the phrase cannonball run from the movie about a car race. So our cannonball run worked like this. All the kids would line up on the diving board. You'd go littlest to biggest, and you'd all just let loose and do your best cannonball, pulling your knees up to your chest and just boom. By the way, my can opener, my one-legged can opener is much better than anybody's cannonball. But that's beside the point. We would just go, just boom, 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 one after another. You'd cannonball in, you'd get up, and you'd do it again. Just cannonball after cannonball. And what you would find is that that first kid, he would hit the water, the waves, the ripples from him hitting that water, it would hit the wall of the pool, and it would come back and meet the waves from the next kid. And the smaller the pool, the greater the chaos. And that's what made it so much fun. This was not just nice, loping waves like you, like you would see out on a beach. It was just nothing but sheer chaos, just madness. We absolutely loved it. Now, I want you to think about the size of the Sea of Galilee. We read that it's 33 miles by 13 miles. This was not a large body of water. And so when you've got this, the air, the cold air meeting the warm air, when you've, you've got this, this bowl surrounded by mountains, when you've got this small lake, it would have been absolutely whipped up into a frenzy. But this wasn't fun for these guys. This was life-threatening. This was real-deal violence that these guys found themselves in the middle of. But he, that's Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So we see here Jesus' humanity on full display. Jesus, again, was exhausted, exhausted from a long day of teaching and preaching, healing. And so he's asleep. And human heads, they sleep better on pillows. It's one of those details that Mark gives us that he surely got from Peter. Was Peter maybe angry because there wasn't a pillow for him, and he just it stuck in his mind that Jesus took the only pillow. But... We see it because human heads, you sleep better on pillows than on a wooden deck. Jesus was ex exhausted, so he takes the cushion, he lays down, and he's asleep. After a long day of sowing the seed, much like the man in the parable, he had done the work of sowing the seed, and now he went to sleep. It wasn't that he didn't know that the storm was happening. I believe he was very much aware of the storm. But he was tired, and he was not anxious, and he was not afraid. And so he slept. In the back of the boat, he slept. In the middle of the storm, he slept. While everybody else freaked out, we see him here. He's sleeping. And they awoke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I've got to imagine that he was being shouted at at this point. 
Matthew tells us that they cried out, Master. Luke says that they cried out, Lord. I imagine it was all of them. Just 12 broken, shrieky voices. Teacher, Master, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? I don't know how he didn't jump up. Looked them in the eye. Do I not care that you're perishing? The whole reason I'm here. I left the glories of heaven. Perfect fellowship with my Father. Eternal worship. I humiliated myself to be born of a woman. Sleeping under the stars. No home of my own, living like a pauper. Preaching the gospel to people that will not understand it and will reject it. I'm going to lay down my life, and every single one of you in this boat are going to flee. Do I not care that you are perishing? It's the whole reason I'm here. My presence with you, not just on this earth, but in this boat. It shows you how much I care. But he doesn't rebuke them. Instead, he awoke, and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Only God could do such a thing. Only God. Just moments after putting his humanity on full display, we see Jesus acting in ways that only God can act. He speaks, and the wind and the waves, they respond. Again, giving us a glimpse of what's going to happen on that glorious day when he returns. You see, at the creation, through Jesus Christ, order came from chaos. He created everything that was. He brought incredible order to it. Ordering. Think about the incredible order that's within your body, that's within nature, that's within you, the universe. And with sin came disorder and chaos. And now we look forward to that day when he comes and with a word, perfect order again. He just gives us a picture right here with a word. He awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said, peace, be still. We had seen Jesus rebuke people. We had seen him rebuke demons and evil spirits. And now we see him here. He's rebuking the wind and the waves. But the wind has no personal identity. The wind isn't, isn't man that it can respond. And, and so we... What we find is that there have been people groups throughout history that this terrifies them. The fact that man cannot control nature, that you can't reason with it. And so that's where they've created these gods. They say, you know what? If I can't argue with a hurricane, I'm going to create the god of rain. And maybe I can worship and I can appease this God of rain. And then I can pray to him because he will owe me something because I have fed him and I have cared for him. And then he will have to stop. That water will have to stop short of my house. So they created these false gods and they worship and they, they try to placate them. But dear friends, the reason that the planet is the way that it is is because of sin. That with the fall right there in the garden... That all creation was dragged in this. Paul tells us that all creation is groaning. Groaning for what? For what we're seeing right here. It's groaning for the one, the creator, to come back. Is the children that are his are revealed to restore order. It's groaning. It's been thrown into chaos and it's groaning for his return. So we don't pray to Mother Nature or to Father Time. We pray to the one who created it all. That is sovereign over it all. We pray to him and we pray to him alone. We know that with just but a word, he can speak and he can bring complete order. The words weren't even necessary. In the beginning, God chose to speak to create, and so does Jesus here. Perhaps for the sake of those that are around him, so they can recognize that this is God that is with them there in this boat. So he speaks, peace, be still, and the waters obey Calmness, perfectly calm is the translation here. Go back to the wave pool example. After the last kid jumps in and cannonballs, it takes a while for things to calm down. After the wind stops blowing, it takes a while for the waves to stop. And yet immediately, in an instant, just as with Peter's mother-in-law. You remember she had a high fever. And yet as Jesus heals her, she doesn't have to wait to regain her strength. 
She doesn't have to, she doesn't have to wait around to recuperate. Immediately, in an instant, she's up and she's serving. When God does something, it is instantaneous and it is incredible. Peace, be still, and immediately, great calmness, perfect calmness. I'm picturing glass, just a sea of glass where there once was chaos and confusion and terror. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The New King James translation says, how is it that you still have no faith? Their words revealed what was in their heart. That this storm, in the middle of this storm, it had caused them to lose sight of that that they knew to be true. Sound familiar? In the middle of a storm, the things that you know to be true in your head, things that you've experienced to be true in your life, promises you've heard to be true in this word, and then in the middle of the chaos, that all goes out the door. You start to doubt See, these guys had been with Jesus. They had been told the secrets of the kingdom of God. These weren't the outsiders. These were the insiders. He had been with them. He didn't teach them in parables. He spoke to them plainly, like a father to a son, not a master to a slave. He had spoken to them in straightforward ways, and he had proven time and time and time again who he was, shown how much he cared and shown the power and the authority that he possessed. And yet right here, it wasn't that they lacked knowledge that their, their faith failed them, that doubt crept in, that fear overtook them. Matter of fact, I think what we would say is, is that the fear caused the doubt. It caused them to doubt so much that they doubted the goodness of Jesus. They doubted that he cared whether or not they were perishing. Why are you so afraid? Some translations have, why are you so timid? The Greek word there is delos. It can mean fearful or timid or cowardly. It is never good to be called a coward. Not in ancient Palestine and not here. Not today. Delos. I imagine there were some schoolyard fights over that word. Delos is defined as an excessive fear of losing something. In the case of the apostles, the case of the disciples on that day, it was excessive fear of losing their life. Excessive fear of losing something which causes a man to lose his moral gumption and fall short. To be struck with fear over the loss of something and stop short of doing that which you know you've been called to do. The fear of losing something which causes you not to pursue and to march forward in God's will. It's not a good thing. Certainly not a good thing in Scripture. You never see it used in a positive way. And it doesn't pop up, pop up often. If you do a search in the New Testament, you won't find that word often. But one of the places that you will find it is in the second to last chapter in your Bible, Revelation 21. John has been given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, this, this place of just perfect fellowship and communion with God where there is no pain, there is no fear, there is no tears, there is no death, there is no sadness, there is no sin. Revelation 21, 7 through 8 says this, The one who conquers will have this heritage, that is, this place, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the delos, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, compared to the murderer, the liar, the detestable, the fearful. Their place shall be Eternal damnation, the lake of fire and sulfur which is never quenched, that that is the place that awaits those that persist in this cowardly, this, this fear of losing something and refusing, losing our gumption and our ability to move forward. Jesus was confronting his men at this place right here. You're cowardly. Why are you so afraid? Why are you refusing to move forward? What are you trying to hold on to? What hope do you have of enduring to the end? In the middle of a storm now, you're doubting my goodness. In the middle of a storm, you're asking if I care not that you're perishing. What hope do you have then when I return to the Father and it is your body that's going to be hung upon a cross or flayed alive or set on fire or removed from your head? 
Why are you so afraid? Why are you so timid? Why are you a coward? Is that why he brought them into the water? To reveal this about themselves? The scripture tells us that Jesus knows the heart of men. He wasn't caught off guard by this. He knew what was within them. Did he bring them out here trapped in a boat? A place where many of them had spent much time. Remember Peter and Andrew, James and John at least were fishermen. They're on the Sea of Galilee. But did he bring them there and bring this storm to reveal to them what was left in their heart? To show them the timidity, the cowardice that was in them? To knock them off balance so that they would go grasping for him? To show them how badly they needed him? To show them what they lacked? Why are you so afraid? If the disciples were shaken, Jesus was not. He was not scared. He was not anxious. He wasn't fearful. He speaks, peace, be still. And complete and total calm comes upon the water. And you would imagine that this would bring just such great comfort to their hearts. We're with the one that speaks to the oceans and they obey. We're with God in this boat. But instead it's the opposite. And they were filled with great fear. There's another word that could be translated fear. It's phobos. It's where we get our word phobia from. It can mean fear or it can mean awe and reverence. You see, while delos is never a good thing, it is never a good thing to be called a coward, there are times when phobos is not only right but commanded in Scripture. You will see that the apostles, as they would come into new towns, the first missionaries that come into new towns, that who would they seek out? Those that feared God. Peter, in his letter, after talking about proper respect for authority, he says this, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. We're commanded to fear him. That while these men were scared for their life, they had an excessive fear over losing this, which caused them to lose their moral gumption and refuse to press forward into that which God had called them. And yet when seeing Jesus acted, it brought them to a proper phobos, proper fear, awe, reverence, respect, healthy and exceeding fear of Jesus there. Great fear is what the scripture says. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's a rhetorical question. They knew. They knew. That's why they were afraid. They were in a boat with God. It's a terrifying thing. They recognize that wind and waves, they don't obey just anybody. Now, they were going to struggle with this throughout the next year, long into the, to the period where the Holy Spirit would come and really illuminate their hearts and really show them the reality of who he was, empower them for the work that God was calling them to. But they knew. Deep down, they knew this is God, and that fear that they felt, it was right. I believe that's perhaps a portion of what Jesus intended by bringing them out here to reveal what they lacked, to reveal the cowardice that was in their nature, and to bring them to a proper fear of him. We see this in Exodus 20 as Moses has brought the people there to Mount Sinai, and God has, has spoken to them and, and, and delivered the Ten Commandments, and they are just wrecked. They are terrified, and they look to Moses, and they say, Moses, no, you go talk to God, and then you come back and talk to us because we can't hear his voice anymore or we're going to die. Exodus 20, 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be in you and that you may not sin. Do not fear as one that's worried about losing your life. Don't run from him as if he were some kind of vicious marauder, someone to be scared of like a drunken father. Don't fear the way that the world fears. He has brought you here in the wilderness to show you his power and his authority and his might and his greatness and his holiness that you may be tested, that you may have the proper fear and awe and reverence, that you may not fall into sin. The fear of disobedience, the fear of dishonoring, Fear of letting down this God that has called you. That's the fear that he desires you. That's the fear that the author of the ninth proverb calls the beginning of all wisdom. A proper and healthy phobos. Not cowardly, but good and healthy. And the one that carries this type of fear, he shall surely endure to the end. Because he rightly sees God as he is. 
Much like John or Isaiah falling down knowing we are sinful men in standing before the living and righteous and holy God. A healthy fear that drives us to obedience, that drives us to, to seek his face all the more while at the same time trembling, knowing how far short we fall. And yet the cowardly, the delos, they will not. They will meet damnation. Those who persist, who try to hold on to the gifts of this life, who have such a fear of losing the things that we have created in this world, that they refuse to pursue, they refuse to move forward, those will find nothing but eternal punishment awaiting them. So what do we do with this? What should have been the proper response? Now that we know the things that we know about Jesus, the whole purpose to this text was to reveal to us who Jesus is, to bring us to a position of proper reverence and awe and wonder and worship and trust and obedience. But knowing that he has brought us there and knowing that that healthy fear is going to lead us to eternity, but knowing at the same time that cowardice is going to lead us to damnation, knowing that in, in order to pursue after him, to follow after Jesus Christ, there's guaranteed to be trouble. There are storms on the horizon, or some of you are right in the middle of very real storms. What's the proper response? And we make sure that we are not counted amongst the cowardly. What should we have done? If we look back at that text, that second to last chapter in our Bible, there's, there's a comparison there. It compares and contrasts two types of people. Revelation 21, 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. What heritage? Eternal life. Reign with Jesus. Join heirs for all eternity. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. The one that conquers will not be destroyed. I will be his father, and he will be my son. The word for conquerors there is Nikon. comes from the word for victory, Nike. The one who conquers, this will be his heritage. The Nikon, the one who achieves victory, that's the one. That in the middle of this storm, it was a real storm. Real wind, real waves, real death potentially awaited these men. What God was calling them to and what he was calling us to was victory. He was calling us to be conquerors. That's what he compared and contrasted with the coward, with the detestable, with the faithless. He's saying this here, that the same answer for them is the answer for us today. How do we overcome our fear? The cowardly fear. How do we overcome our sin? How do we overcome the world? What is the answer to being a conqueror and a victor? Preachers love to preach sermons about victory. And they point us to the world's wisdom. The victory is found in something inherent within us, and we've just got to tap into it. We've just got to learn the, the right tricks of this world. Perhaps we've just got to minimize the danger out there and pretend like it's not there. Those nimrods that stand on the shore while you're getting just beat to smithereens in your boat, and they just yell out, you just got to quit that stinking thinking. It's going to be okay. That's no help. It may not be okay, not the way she means it. You may die. Your children may die. Your marriage may not make it. You may not get that magic amount of money you need to make your bills at the end of the month. So what does it look like to be a victor, to be a conqueror, knowing this? Well, there's four passages. There's a bunch of passages which use this root word, Nike, victory. But there's four that I want to draw your eyes to that I think can give you real hope. In the middle of the storm that you're in now, the storm that's coming, or the storm that you've just come out of the backside of. Everybody's in one of those places. John 16, 33 says this. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Thanks, Jesus. These are the things you're saying that I can have peace? You're promising me tribulation? But take heart. I have overcome. The root word there, Nike, victory. I have overcome. I am the conqueror. I have overcome the world. Guaranteed from the mouth of Jesus, in this life you will have tribulation. Whether you follow me or not, you're going to have tribulation. But if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake, for the sake of my gospel. 
You're going to be hated and despised because they hated and they despised me. They persecuted me and they put me to death. I'm the one you follow after. You're guaranteed there's going to be tribulation in this lifetime. And yet you can have peace. Why? Because you're great? Because you're strong? Because you're mighty? Because the dangers aren't that bad or they aren't that real? No, because I have overcome. My victory brings you peace. Your confidence is not found in you. Not found in any battles that you're going to have. It's found in me. Found in the reality that I have overcome the world. I've overcome everything that there is. And because of that, you can find peace in the middle of this storm. The problem with the disciples on this day was they looked at themselves. They looked at their own abilities. They looked at their own lack of abilities. They looked at the size of the storm. They looked at the lack of options when they should have looked at him. The conqueror, the one that had overcome. They should have said, we're in the boat with the one that has overcome everything. Does not mean we won't lose our life in this moment, but it means because we are with him and his victories are our victories that we can have peace. Right in the middle of the storm, we can have peace. But how can we be assured that Jesus' victory is it? We don't look up and, and see Jesus in a boat with us physically. So how can we be assured that his victory will account to us when he's not here with us physically? When in the middle of these storms, when you're sitting in a hospital room, you don't see physical Jesus sitting next to you. When you're crying out in the middle of the night, you don't feel the physical arm of Jesus around you. So how do we know that he's still here? How do we know that he hasn't abandoned us? How do we know that this trouble isn't too great? How do we know that we haven't crossed some imaginary line? Scripture speaks to that. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Not a great picture. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Hyper-Nike is the word. Complete conquerors. Total conquerors. We're completely victorious. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That for the ones that Jesus loves, for the ones whose his victory becomes our victory, there is nothing that can separate us from that. Nothing. Nothing we can do, nothing the world can do, nothing the enemy can do, nothing our sin can do, nothing the world can do. There is nothing that can separate us. That's what it means for him to be our God and us to be his people. That when his victory is attributed to us, it is eternal and forever and infinite. There is no battle. We don't come to each battle and watch it like a football game and say, I wonder if Jesus will be with us in this one. I wonder if we will be victorious in this battle. We know that every single one, no matter how badly the odds are stacked against us, no matter how badly we've failed in the past, no matter how big the storm or how small the boat, we know that in all things, his victory shall never be ripped away from our hands. Not because we hold him, but because he holds us. That's the promise that we find here. He fights, we enjoy the victory. How do we acquire this victory? How then? Is it just for everybody? Just everybody that's born, a man, all of a sudden, Jesus' victory are attributed to us. Well, he goes on to talk about that. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes, conquers, has the victory. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It is by faith, only by faith, that his victory becomes our victory. That in him by our faith in him, we overcome the world. It's not by might. It's not by worldly wisdom. It's not by our own efforts. It's not with the tools of this world. It's not fighting the way that the world fights. It's by our faith in him. 
by following him, the suffering servant, knowing that we ourselves will suffer, placing our faith and our trust in him, turning from ourselves and turning from our sin. That's the victory that overcomes the world. And the world laughs as it takes your life. Victorious? You're broke. Victorious? You're sick. Victorious? I'm going to now take your life and you can't do a thing about it. It took Jesus' life too. By placing our faith in him, he says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Well, how will we know if that faith is real? How will we know if we've truly been joined with him? That's what he says at the beginning of that verse. That he's given us evidence because he knows how our hearts fail us. He, know how, he knows how difficult it is to, to believe that this faith is real. So he's given, given us evidence. How? That we love the brothers. Do you love the brothers? Do you read my word and do you obey my commandments? Does that earn you victory? No. No. Nothing you can do can earn the victory. Nothing you can do can make you a conqueror. But it's evidence that you've been joined with him. It's evidence that you're found in him. It's evidence that he is your victor. That you've done these things, and that's where we fall so short at times, that we find ourselves in the middle of the storm and we start crying out, Jesus, don't you care that I'm perishing? And it isn't that we think that he abandons his own. It's that we think we couldn't possibly be his. Because we've lived such lukewarm lives. We've been so negligent. We don't read his word. We don't spend time loving the brothers. We're not living obedient lives. So we've robbed ourselves of any assurance. So that as we're getting punched in the face... And the winds and the waves are coming over the boat. We go, well, wait, am I really his? Have I really trusted him? I see no fruit. I see no evidence. It's one of the beauties of living fruitful lives in connection with the body. Staying glued to his word. Hiding it in our hearts. That in the middle of the storm, we can cling to his promises. We can really see his face as he's been revealed here. Look, you never read Mark's gospel. You don't know what Jesus looks like. How would you know if he's there? You don't know the one you're being called to trust in. So as we study his word and we see him, rightly see him, the way that God has revealed him through the gospels, we go, that's the victor. That's the one I can join my life to. And as we see ourselves doing things that we would have never otherwise done, giving and loving and serving and going, we go, this isn't me. How is this happening? It's evidence of the faith. Evidence that we've been joined to him. Knowing that if we've been joined to him, there's nothing that's going to ever separate us from him. Even as our head is separated from our body and we give our life, you can't take away the victory. I die as my Savior died. Good. It's a picture of overcoming. But I know that that's not in me. It's not in me to have faith. It's not in me not to be a coward. It's not in me to trust. It's not in me to obey. None of these things are in me. So what hope do I have then? In my fleshly nature, what hope do I have? None. That's where this last text comes in. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome, been victorious, conquered. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he, is greater than he who is in the world. That he is in us. See, we've got an advantage that the disciples didn't. They had Jesus physically in the boat with them. We have Jesus spiritually in our heart. He's in us. The victor is in us. You understand what that means? There's nothing that should cause us to flinch or to stutter step. Pain still hurts. We still mourn loss. But there's nothing that this world can take away from us that we're going to back away from the plans that he's called us to, from pursuing his will, from pressing on during the storm. We go, Jesus, you've already overcome this and you're in me. You're greater than the God of this age. You're greater than the tormentors that are out there. You're greater than my own heart. When my eyes lie to me and they say there's no path forward, Father, I'm going to pursue forward. I'm going to walk forward because I know that you are in me. You haven't just called me to this life. You're equipping me for this life. You're empowering me for this life. That's what it means to be a victor. As we march on and the world looks at us and goes, loser. No. No. There's no value in me. There's nothing I have conquered. There's nothing I have created. There's nothing I have done. But he who is in me is greater than he that is in the world. I am more than a conqueror because of the one that loves me. 
And you cry out at those that are drowning around you. Those that are in the middle of storms. Place your trust in him, the conqueror, the victor. Place your faith in him and watch what happens. You have a healthy fear of him, respect, awe, reverence of him. You'll find that your fear of all the rest of this stuff, it shrinks. You worry a whole lot less about loss in this lifetime. In fact, you'll begin to count loss as gain. What once was gained is now lost. You stop keeping score the way that the world keeps score. You stop viewing things the way that the world views things. You wake up each day knowing that the victory has already been won. The conqueror has already come. There's nothing left for you to do. Then in faithful obedience, you put your head down. You say, what's next, King Jesus? Where are you leading me today? And then you go, and the victory's already won. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you so much that you've not left us here to fight these battles. But you sent the one whom the wind and the waves obey. The one through whom all things were created and all things are sustained. Your son, Jesus the Christ. Father, we thank you for the victory that is found in him. Father, we pray your forgiveness for all the times that we have We believe the lies of the enemy, that we've lost, that we are losers. Father, we recognize that there is no place in your kingdom for either the braggart or the victim. While this world seems to celebrate both, this world seems to celebrate the boastful. This world seems to celebrate the victim that walks around as if all is lost. Father, we know that in Christ Jesus, the victory has been won, and we ourselves are more than conquerors. Father, if there's any joining with us this morning that have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that you would stir in their hearts, that you would send your spirit by the testimony of your word, you would call them to life. They would trust, they would believe, they would repent, and they would be saved. Father, we pray that the words we sing now would be pleasing to your ears, that you would be glorified. So your son's precious name we pray. Amen.